Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is the wonderful video game designer, Michael Bro. Uh, Michael is responsible for, for some really, really excellent games um my, my favorite is uh, is is imbroglio his most recent game on on ios which is just uh, an an endless well of just clever design and it's so so much fun and so like it just it keeps unlocking new layers of complexity the more i play it and it's just it's so satisfying to play um he also made 868 hack i think it's probably his most popular game I, a lot of people i've spoken to have a a lot of love for for eight six eight hack, but he's he's prolific. You know, go to his website. I'll put a link in the show notes. He's made just so many games, and for the for the developers who listen to the show, um, he's he has an amazing uh, dev blog and diary, um, particularly in relation to to Imbroglio. I'm sure there's. I mean, I'm saying I'm sure because I'm I'm not a developer. I don't really understand the the kind of the detailed process of making a game. Um, but for those who do, like he, he's the, he writes really well, and there's a, there's such a, a passion and creativity. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good chat. I really thoroughly enjoyed talking to Michael, um, and I was very excited to, to like I didn't realize before the interview that that he was uh, from New Zealand. Well, he's based in Portugal now, I believe. Um, and I was uh, like, that means I've now spoken to people from most continents on Earth. I think Antarctica is the only one that I'm missing. Um, and this is this is this may be a bit of a long shot. But if anyone listening knows anybody who happens to be stationed in Antarctica for whatever reason, um, I, I imagine some sort of science uh, science based reason, uh, then please like put me in touch. I'd love to to speak to somebody to, like sat in an Antarctic base. Uh, I feel like you know there's a lot of time to play video games. You know the weather's the weather's not great. Um, I just I, I, that'd be a fun episode. So if anyone does, I, I appreciate this is a bit of a long shot. But if anyone does, uh, put me in touch. Um, I'm going to look into that myself anyway, I think. Um, also, uh, in terms of, you know, looking for people on the show, uh, I put out a call a few episodes back uh, for new developers, people who are just starting in, in game design. Uh, I had a really lovely response to that. I've spoken to most of those people now, and I'm gradually kind of editing them all together for a, a special autosave episode. Um, but I'd also love to hear from anyone who's making any kind of uh, political game or... Have anyone has kind of like thoughts, I guess, about politics and games? Um, I mentioned it last week. I think it's like, of course, there's politics and games, and there should be more of it. There should be more politics in in everything. Uh, so, if you have any sort of burning thoughts on that, or you know, if you're working on a game that directly relates to that, then please do get in touch. Uh, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at checkpoint show or on Facebook at checkpoints podcast. It's very important to have consistent branding. Yeah, so please do feel free to, to get in touch, drop me a line. Um, even if it's not about the political stuff, if you just want to say hello, uh, that's that's all right. It's quite nice. Um, this isn't a cry for help. Um, and, you know, while you're on these, you know, social media uh, sites, why not give the show a follow, give it a like, or uh, tweet about it, you know? I'm always looking to, to grow the audience as much as I can. If you, if you enjoy the show, please do. 
tell a friend, tweet about it, um, rate and review on iTunes, you know, whatever, whatever I can do to, uh, to, to, to help is, is greatly appreciated. If you really like the show, there is a Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the, uh, the money and the inclination, then uh, all donations are very gratefully received and, and go towards making the show as, as good as it possibly can be. Um, but anyway, thanks as always for listening. Uh, really appreciate the, the downloads. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Um, so for the sake of, I guess, tradition and, and clarity, I'll do like a, a, a basic introduction. So Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Um, sure. Um, hi, I'm Michael Bro. I make video games. Um, I've made one reasonably successful game called 868 Hack and a bunch of other games that are less successful but fairly well respected in their niches. Um, Vespa 5, Become a Great Artist in Just 10 Seconds with Andy McClure. Um, Helix, Glitch Tank, Compendium, Corrupt, and Imbroglio most recently. Imbroglio. I'm a bit ambiguous on the pronunciation. You don't mind which way? Because I've been saying Imbroglio because that's your name. It's kind of a deliberate ambiguity. It's got Rogue (laughs) in there if you pronounce it one way, or it's got Brog, which is a, a screen name I sometimes go by. Another way, yeah. It's, the the, the, the kind of the the sheer volume of your output is is quite astounding. Like I was looking through a few days ago, just the the the, the number of games that that you've made, like in various uh, iterations. And like, I'm curious. Like, I, I try and sort of, I've not really spoken to devs about this before, but I think with you, it's really, I guess, really noticeable because of the kind of the volume of games you've done. Like, do you have? Uh, do you have like a specific philosophy on on like what constitutes the game, or do, or do you feel like you you have a specific style or intent that you're always going for with your games? Um, I'm usually making stuff I want to play. Okay, like that's that's a basic philosophy. Something that I will play myself. But you don't uh, have like any specific kind of design philosophy. It's just will this be fun? Maybe this will be fun. Yeah, I, I, I have things that come out in that based on what, what I do want to play, but I try not to stick to the same philosophy all the time because then the same things will come out. Yeah. But, I, yeah, if you look at all of them, there probably is some pretty clear overarching patterns. I think part of it is the style as well because, like, you do everything yourself. Yeah, usually. And is that like, have you ever been tempted to, to bring on other people? I have a couple of times brought on other people for sound because I'm quite comfortable making like weird <laughs> sounds myself. <laughs> but, but if a game needs something that sounds a bit more like conventional music kind of stuff, then that's less my domain. So... For Vertex Dispenser, I had Ashen Galus 
make some sounds. I did some of the sounds and he made some music beats that worked around it. And for Helix, um, Andrew Toops did all of the sounds. Um, apart from that, or myself, yeah. Um, yeah. So let, let's sort of meander back then, Michael. Um, if, if you can remember, what was your, your very first experience of a video game? So I don't remember which specific game, but I remember the computer. It okay. was a, a, a Tandy IBM compatible, I guess, early 90s. And this is um, in New Zealand, right? That's where you're from yeah, originally. Yeah. yeah. And it had kind of a, a graphical shell, not Windows, but like a pre-Windows kind of graphical shell. And it came with, like, I think, pre-installed on like Pac-Man, Tetris, Flightmare, Flightmare? Flightmare is a yeah, brilliant Flightmare. name. And, like, some educational learning about numbers, uh, games. Um, and how did this come into your life? Was this, like, a family thing? Family thing, yeah. So was your dad or mum, like, really into tech, or was it just, they just part of their job, or? Because it's quite rare, like, I suppose, back then. Yeah, my dad um, worked from home and he, I guess, wanted it to write on and do accounting and stuff because he was um, he was working in newspaper distribution at the time. Okay. He was like the, um, I guess, manager for distribution of a particular area. Like, yeah, he could, like collected the newspapers and gave them to the people who took them to the individual letterboxes. So, so there was, a, like, the games kind of got side-loaded in from that? Yeah, like, I just came pre-installed with some stuff. And um, was it, like, a revelation to you? You are like, oh, my God, this is this is the best. Yeah, I was like, it's just, like, a whole, whole world in there. And, yeah, I, I just, like, loved exploring the computer to just, like, find out what was on there. And I found out how to get into the, the DOS command shell. Um, and it's like this mysterious text adventure where you type in things. Yeah. Uh, you don't, eventually you figure out the commands and you can explore that. I remember um, when I first learned that, like, dot, dot, and dot, dot, dot to sort of change directories, I felt like the ultimate hacker. <laughs> it's just the simple way of navigating DOS. And then I, then I found, through the DOS prompt, I found it had BASIC installed. And like yeah, so that like the the, the 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 computer itself was was more a game than than the individual games. Like explore the computer, and then you find buried treasure, like basic. I yeah, I I eventually got a book out of the library to explain to me how to do stuff in it because I was just like typing things and seeing what happened before that, but. That's kind of how I started programming. I just found basic buried in the command prompt. And how, like, were you super young at this point? How old were you when all this uh, was happening? Probably seven or eight, I guess. I don't, I don't remember exactly. And was there like, um, like a community of people around you? Like, were you aware of kind of the the broader gaming scene? Like, did you have pals who were all into games as well, or was was this just like your weird little niche? Yeah, I had have friends at school who were into games. Um, mostly, like, 
a few different people had different consoles, so everyone had a different set of games they had access to. So it's like we go over to this person's house and, wow, well, you've got New Zealand story and you know, this person's house and there's like, yeah. Was, was that, um, was there sort of some amount of pride in New Zealand story being from New Zealand? It was weird. It was just... I'd never, that's never occurred to me before until you just said that. It's just bizarre, I, I guess, Japanese, uh, somewhere in Asia, I don't know exactly where it's from, but it's somewhere, their interpretation of New Zealand, so it's nothing like New Zealand, but... but... <laughs> you don't have Kiwis shooting crossbows or anything? Oh, they, they look more like chickens, I think. They really do look like chickens. I thought it was a chicken until I actually yeah. read about the game. Uh, I'm looking it up now. Yeah, published by Taito in Japan. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's bizarre. Like, what's this got to do with New Zealand? But <laughs> I guess it was a game named after yeah. your country, though. So that's exciting. Yeah, like that was interesting because everything is set in America or England. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, were you kind of pining for? for consoles or were you just happy tinkering with with basic and stuff like did anyone else kind of share that interest with you or was it just like games are just like another toy that you play with your pals yeah no one else was really interested in programming then i but i got books in the library and i was like wow see there's a thing and i don't understand and the internet is a thing and maybe i could get that one day um, did, was there like uh, speak especially like uh, British developers that I've spoken to? Like, they tend uh, there used to be um, listings in like magazines like Spectrum and BBC. Uh, they would have like listings that you could just type in and create your own games and stuff. Did you have anything like that? Yeah, I remember typing in a tic tac toe game, and it had an AI that would always win or tie. And then I didn't really understand how it worked, but I just changed stuff in it until it didn't always win, so I could beat it. <laughs> you just hacking the AI to, to, so you could win the game. Yeah. And um, but like I, I'm I'm curious like to what like how that would feed back into playing games. Like you know, the games you sort of described that were already loaded on there, they all sound you know relatively basic. So is it just the case that you got bored of those and like messing around with stuff was much more fun. Um, I can't really remember clearly enough to say either way. I, I think I just was exploring different things on different days. Did you ever do any ir- irreparable damage? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I hope no. <laughs> I mean to the computer, not to yourself or any anyone around you, obviously. Yeah, I not 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 to the computer. Like possibly to someone else's files. But <laughs> um, I, so, so, how yeah. did your your relationship with games kind of change as you got older? Then, did you continue just sort of tinkering with with programming, or did you kind of get consoles and start getting into the more sort of traditional stuff? I never had consoles, but we we got a later computer that had Windows and some different shareware games. So I spent more time playing those because there was more depth in them. Um, Castle of the Winds was the first roguelike I played. 
and Captain Comic. I've never heard of any of these games. Yeah, like the the early PC game scene is like kind of kind of a bit removed from the standard console history. That absolutely, is, yeah. yeah, yeah, that. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't great. Like a lot of the games were sort of rip-offs of the console games. But and like, what, what is it you think about that kind of, especially the the roguelike, which is a mechanic that you've used a bunch of that that really grabbed you? Okay, I think I think at the time, like it was just about exploring mysterious worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I didn't I didn't care that much. Like about the, the roguelike aspect of the world being randomly generated because every game was a strange world. Yeah. Um, but then as I got older and more able to like actually beat games, because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily expect to finish a game. It's just like somewhere you wander around and see what happens. Oh, so we were, we were talking about Captain Comic. Yes. Which was a old PC platformer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it had a sequel, Captain Comic Two, that I also played a few years after. And okay, so the 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 scenario of the game was that you're traveling through space. You land on a planet. There's a mystery to solve there. You, you talk to people there, and you find out that there's been a a dimensional fracture. The planet's been split into parallel universes, and you're going to have to explore all the parallel universes to to solve this and and restore it. Uh, like you know, standard kind of pseudo sci-fi framing story. Absolutely. And so, you know, I played the game, explored, found found the the parallel universe transportation device that that has been telling you about and when you when you activate it it gives you a, a circle of different different universes to choose from there's like the fire universe and the the plasma universe and the ice universe and it's all like okay these are going to be fairly yeah, you, know, you, you expect it's just going to be like the standard video game, ice world, forest world. Yeah, like a palette swap almost. Yeah, but I I selected selected like lightning world or something, and then and then the screen goes black, and and then and then you come out, and the screen's like you're in the exact same room as before. Everything looks identical, and I was like, whoa. Because I'd just been expecting like the, the yeah. obvious, but but it's just like everything looks the same. And then I, I it was a, this was set in a in a temple building, so I went outside. The world outside was also the same, so it's not that there was a copy of the same building in the parallel universe. It was like the whole thing was the same. That's yeah, quite that's quite uh, unnerving, almost. Yeah, it's like mind blowing. It's like it's not just like obvious video game style elemental universes it's like i guess these are like parallel universes that are you know like a flip of a coin different yeah 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 
there's going to be like something really subtle. So I like explored the, the world trying to find out what was different because I figured, you know, they said it's a mystery that you'll have to solve and and what's I have to like look through this this parallel universe and find the the point where it diverges. Yeah, and, and I explored and I couldn't I couldn't see it. I was like, wow, what's and what one of the so I went back to the the room of the machine and I was like, I'll pick another universe, and again it's the same. And I was like, how how am I going to solve this? So I, I picked the water universe because I thought maybe that's a clue because there's water around the place and I like explored where there was water, went underwater and the waterfalls and stuff. I okay. still couldn't find anything different. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah. So I, I, I sunk like many hours into exploring the world of this game, trying to understand its mystery and, and didn't get anywhere. And... Eventually, like, lost interest and went on and played something else. But years later, I, I looked this up on the internet, and it turns out that this was a shareware version of the game. In <laughs> 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 the full version, you go to, through the portal to the parallel universe, and it's the fire universe, and there's fire everywhere. It's just what you would expect. <laughs> so I... I through not not realizing that what I was playing was an incomplete game, <laughs> imagined a much more bizarre and, and incredible game than, than what I really was. That's amazing. You um, probably you probably got a lot more out of it doing it that way. Yeah, it kind of suited like, you exactly. If it was because you're expecting this kind of rote video game version, it's like, oh, well, it's not that. It must be something amazing. Yeah, I, I got. Like hours of play out of it. <laughs> Probably more hours than if I just had the levels to go through. You mentioned in the email, like, I mean, spoilers. I sometimes send emails with uh, questions. Not sometimes, every time. I don't know why this is a spoiler. <laughs> but but you mentioned, like, how much time you, you spent on StarCraft and in particular kind of StarCraft modding. Uh, tell me about StarCraft modding. Like, was that, at what sort of age were you when this sort of started? Um, so StarCraft came out when I was about 14, I guess. Okay. I don't, yeah, I, I don't remember the exact year, but I remember who I was at school with and like seeing the game in a shop with a friend and just been like getting really excited about the game. Yeah. Cause it just looked really cool. Like, you know, we played Command and Conquer kind of stuff where you're, controlling an army but starcraft like every single unit has weird abilities like burrowing underground and uh, it just seemed like a, a very different kind of approach to being a an army commander yeah more like individualistic it's amazing that kind of idea of seeing something in a, in a shop like because it, that just doesn't really exist anymore but you know yeah. you, put, you put so much of uh, you, you imprint so much on that the potential for the idea is so is so exciting, you know. Yeah, I, I remember there being a, a PC set up in the shop, and you could play it in the shop. And, like, it totally sold it to me. Like, <laughs> just going through the first missions. And we anyway, did... yeah. I, okay. It had the the map editor, and so I, I very quickly when I got got the game started messing around with that and seeing what I could do, and then. 
looking around online, there were all these other things that people were using to mod it as well, um, where people had like gone into the, the data files yeah. and figured out the format and then made editors for them. It was uh, like a really elaborate modding, modding scene. Was that one of the first games to sort of utilize that? I mean, I always think of uh, of like Doom when I think of modding. That's always the first thing that comes to mind. But was StarCraft quite early too? Um, I mean, Doom's an older game than StarCraft. Oh, of course so. it is, yeah. 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 But it was um, your first experience of it, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I'm not trying to say anything about the, the global narrative. It's just like where I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came across modding. And... Yeah, so that I, that wasn't my first game development experience because I've been messing around with Basic as a kid and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. As a younger kid, but it, it was definitely a, a, a formative game development time for me. I was just messing with that. And how so though? Like how how do you like when you first started? Like you know, realizing the potential, like the, the things you could do with with StarCraft mods. Like what? what were your sort of first instincts to try and make were you just kind of I, I guess what i'm trying to get at is like did you have some sort of like instinct as to what made a good level or were you just like oh, i want to make something huge and amazing and big mountains yeah, and stuff like, way too ambitious like, yeah <laughs> conversions, you know a whole uh, like, uh, yeah you, you start with just like poking around seeing what you can do and change some numbers and open the game and hey now the marines kill everything in one hit that's cool but that's not that satisfying so yeah. then straight from that i was like well i can see all the possibility i can make a completely new game using this and yeah a whole a whole different tech tree of different pieces that you can yeah so it's so what sort of stuff did you come up with um like my the the big big project that i worked on for a while that obviously I never finished because it was over ambitious was uh, a total conversion mod that had six different races right <laughs> something simple out. yeah <laughs> but like, the reason for this is I found out so there's a tool Stargraft that let you um, edit the tech tree like what unit dependencies they were and change what buttons units had so you could full on, you know, make a barracks, be able to make a tank. Yeah. And yeah, like to completely be able to replace everything. And what I realized with that was that the, the dependencies, what was allowed to build what, were separate from the buttons like what actually in the game had the command to build what. Okay. And so I made a, a simple mod where my command center had the ability to build a battle cruiser. Right. <laughs> so right from the game, I, right from the start of the game, I can just build the strongest unit in the game. Okay. And I made another mod where the command center was allowed to build the battle cruiser but didn't have the button for it and sent that to a friend of mine. So then we <laughs> that's just, that seems started. like a cruel trick. No, it, uh, he, he was in on it. So he right, right, it was okay. like just to test the concept, but 
yeah, so we started the game. I start building a battlecruiser straight away, and the, it doesn't crash his client because it's got the permission enabled, even though he doesn't have the button. Okay, okay, okay. So oh, that's that's quite clever. This, that's quite clever, right? So it would if you try to do it without that, it just wouldn't run. Yeah, it would crash because like you, you, if you just go online, try and do this with someone, like you push the battlecruiser button, they get an invalid order, and it crashes their client, or desyncs the game or something it just doesn't work but that's quite interesting so you have to kind of you have to to, you know bear in mind the kind of the multiplayer aspect when modding so you don't destroy the game while doing it yeah that's super clever so who were the what what were the six races uh it was it was not that creative it was just variations on the free starcraft races right okay okay the Terrans were split into like an infantry army that had 10 different kinds of marines with 10 different kinds of laser guns and a robot army that had all these vehicles but no organic units. Did you spend a lot of time with the the lore of it or was it just, you know, the mechanics that you were most interested in? Yeah, mostly the mechanical things, just like not having lots of different graphics and stuff to put in it because that was a whole different thing that I hadn't, looked much into just like what by changing the data and the scripts what could i make the units be able to do without yeah and did that like did you was it purely you know just to play with with friends or like i, I imagine i'm i'm like I'm, I'm i was never a big player of starcraft but uh i'm sure there was like a planet quake equivalent where you know everybody shared all their mods and stuff yeah i never really shared it because I was like just trying to build this big thing, and then then the idea was that I would share it when so when it was done, rather than what would maybe have been more practical would be to share it as I was going and get more feedback on it. But I, I played it a bit with friends, and it worked. But the problem with these modding tools was that every time Blizzard patched the game, it changed all the values in memory, like the positions of them. So then the modding tools had to be updated to adapt to the new positions. Right, okay. So any sort of long-term project is just, you're going to have to kind of restart every couple of months, I guess, with every patch. Yeah, and I there, there, there was a process to, to do it, but I, I didn't know how to do it. Right, okay. Um, and the, the person who understood what to do, like, updated the tools for a few patches but then he got a job at blizzard right (laughs) updating the tools for hacking their games (laughs) um so then that that scene kind of fizzled out for a while Um, did you still play like did you play the subsequent games and stuff i i haven't played starcraft too much at all um i played warcraft 3 for a while and did map making in that but yeah I said oh so something else like that that I found out you could do with the different clients um so the units had to have permissions for the orders they were that, that, that you gave them for it to work multiplayer okay but I found out that every unit has permission to die okay and the death is like implemented in the game as uh, an order, even though it's not an order that you usually give. 
directly. Yeah, it's not like, okay, but, everyone die now. Yeah. <laughs> so I was able to put a button on a unit that had the order die to kill my own units. Which, there's no reason you'd want to do it, but <laughs> it was The fact possible. that you could. And, and it worked multiplayer. I could make a modified client where I had this extra ability, connect to a multiplayer game, and without breaking anything, just kill my own units whenever I wanted. (laughs) I suppose there's some kind of uh, high-level sort of psychological play you could employ with that, like send people one way and, you know, uh, bait the enemy to go that way and then kill everyone, although, you know... I don't know what purpose that would serve, but still. Or just a really good troll. Given that there's like a a maximum number of units, there might be an edge case for using it in a like really high level play. But mostly if you've paid for a unit, you want to keep it. (laughs) It would be better to to kill it by actually getting something out of it. but yeah, so I connected to some games and like tried to mess with people by going like, hey, someone's hacked the game. My units are dying. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't hacked the game because why would I do this to myself? And then accusing <laughs> other people of hacking the game. And so you're not necessarily going to win anything, but you're going to play some fun mind games with people. Yeah, well, it was fun as a mature teenager. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you like seek out other games? Like, were you aware of kind of a, a, a broader gaming world, or were you just kind of getting what 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 you you had or what was already on the PC, or like shareware stuff? Obviously, yeah, like games always seemed really expensive, so I didn't get many new games. Um. Yeah, I remember buying Commander Keen. Okay. Yeah. You recognize that one? I do. <laughs> um, and I remember buying a, a, a disc that had 201 shareware games. Oh, that's always that, exciting. That was amazing. You just like dig for it. I don't know what. Yeah. So that there was a lot of hours of exploring in there. It like that's exciting enough in itself. Yeah. Just you never know what yeah. you're going to get. And what about, like, this is, like, a classic kind of um, thread that's gone through, like, pretty much every episode I've done, is that the, especially with, like, home computers and, and early PCs, like, how how kind of exciting piracy was in the sense that you would get things like a disc with just 100 random games on and you, you wouldn't yeah. know what you were going to get. It was amazing. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember doing much piracy around that time, like, Obviously, a bit later in my late teens, there was more of that happening. Um, I'm trying to think. I spoke to... I can't remember who it was that I spoke to. That's terrible. But they, they, they grew up in Australia. And, like, their their whole kind of youth was pirated games because it was just so expensive to get anything new that everything yeah, was yeah. just pirated. Not to say that New Zealand is the same as Australia because, of course, it isn't. But in, in that respect, it is. Like, yeah, all, yeah. All the games Economically. Were they were like $120 for a new game, which is like... That's insane. Yeah. And American dollars like 150 or something. It's like, what? Like, 
so of course you're going to have this kind of new market that kind of opens up and that's i think another reason why there was so many like australians and people in new zealand who mainly played on computers as well because of that kind of ecosystem yeah yeah. Yeah, everything else was super expensive yeah like it seems like in america the culture was quite different with like consoles being the the sort of poor person's way to play games mm-hmm. for us it was definitely piracy and so but did you have like the internet at this point if you get in shareware i imagine there'll be some version of the internet did, did, did that kind of break it open even further were you able to discover because like uh, i'm from what what you sort of mentioned so far it feels like you're doing this kind of as much as it's an interest you have, you're kind of doing it in, in isolation, essentially. Like, did, did did you seek people out or did the internet introduce sort of people into your life that you could be like, oh, they make games too? Yeah, when... Uh, I can't remember exactly when we got an internet connection, but I was probably around, like, early teens. So there was a good several years when it was pretty pretty isolated like that. So, so, in terms of like um, making games, and you, you've been tinkering with this stuff since you were a kid. Like, was it in your head that, oh, when I grow up, I'll I'll make video games? That's something I can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My parents say when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine, I, what I want to do when I grow up is make video games, and they're like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, at least for them, that wasn't that wasn't one of the jobs that, that that you did when you grew up no so. absolutely not were your parents ever into games at all did they ever play yeah my dad played um some of the games quite a bit pac-man tetris and he got really into mist as well oh cool uh, yeah. but so did um you were clearly undaunted you're like no this is fine i can do this um I, it's, it's not been like a, a clear path, you know. I, I, I guess it, it became a thing that I always did on the side, but I never expected to actually be a job. Because yeah, I, 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 I got older. I didn't know anyone who was making games, and I became more aware that it was a big business that. That companies do rather than yeah I, I didn't know anyone who was doing what I did just making making small games on my own so I didn't I didn't even it. with like uh, even with the internet like did you not sort of start to see other people no like I wasn't aware of any kind of indie scene at that point um, and I'm assuming there wouldn't have been like uh, an obvious path to follow like go here and study this and then go and join this company like, yeah, were there so big New Zealand companies? Certainly not in New Zealand at the time. Are there um, any sort of famous New Zealand devs? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, there's there's some friends of mine from university have a, a game, Half of Exile. Oh, okay, of course. Yeah. And there was a company in Wellington that had a game in the IGF a few years ago. And... There's a few there's a few companies now, but but back then I wasn't aware of anything when I was a kid. So how 
like with, with that sort of idea in mind like did you ever kind of fall out of love with games or ever think like oh this is this is for kids now and i'm gonna i don't know go and do something grown up um no i, I always i always saw it as a as a reasonable thing to do as a hobby because i'd you know I, i'd known adults who played games like some of my dad's friends were quite into games as well so i always saw it as a as a reasonable thing to keep doing but you know, not obviously i had to find a, a career that was actually a reasonable career so I, I went to university and studied maths and computer science expecting to just do normal programming jobs but bearing in mind that it was like a it would help with me still making games as my side thing yeah and when you got to university was there like a, a community of people like that that's kind of a, a thing that's often ha- comes up with people who are like really into computers that they discover their their kind of community in university because all these people are coming together yeah yeah the the yeah, a lot of the CS people were into little freeware games, and that was cool. But there was no, like, did you start making more stuff in university? Or did you ever collaborate then in university? No collaborations. I was, I still made stuff, but I guess I was more focused on studies at that point. Because, you know, it takes up a lot of time. Yeah. And then, and then I got really into maths for a while, so I was like, Actually, maybe I'll become a mathematician. So, yeah. So, what then, what what changed? Why why didn't that happen? Um, I, I I did some postgrad study. I, I did a masters. I started a PhD, and then I just got really depressed and quit the whole thing. Um, it was a long process. But what, like, it just you just got kind of fatigued by the whole idea of doing it like were you still making games through this whole period yeah i was still making games and do you Um, think that was part of the reason why you were like ah do you know i should give this a go because this makes me happier yeah basically mathematical research can be really slow and frustrating yeah and so when i was not making any headway on that like Making games was a thing I could. Oh, I'll just go and like write a few lines of code, and I can make something explode. And, and <laughs> it's satisfying to work on something and actually see a result. Did, so, did you? Um, were you still playing games as much at this point, though, or was it was the kind of act of making like small things kind of scratching that itch, so to speak? Um, I around then I got more into playing board games. Okay. Yeah, I had a group of friends in England who we played board games together. So that was cool. So did you end up in England then? When did you go go to England? Uh, for, for my PhD. Oh, okay, okay. London. That London. What sort yeah. of board games were you playing? Uh, a, a lot of Race for the Galaxy. Okay. And a bunch of different things. Like some of the standard Euro... El Grande, Settlers, Carcassonne. Yeah, there was a, a board game group at a university that, that we go to that 
had all the different games, so we just play lots of different things as well. And so what then prompted you to, I guess, I mean, I don't know if you did sort of change to take it more seriously or if you just kind of continue doing games. But Do you think there was a specific point where you were like, right, this is, I'm going to focus all my attention on this thing? It was very gradual, like... Yeah, I, I I went through this period of, of depression when when I wasn't getting much work done at all, and then my wife got a job in Germany. She finished her PhD and got a job. And I was like, wow, uh, I'd rather be in the same country as you. Um, maybe I can still work on my PhD a little bit as so I, I switched to doing that part-time and then I was thought, well, you know this game that I'm making maybe it can actually be a thing I can sell because but by then I, I'd gotten involved in TIG source and online indie stuff so I, I knew that was a thing now so uh, yeah then, then part-time became just full-time making the games and forget the <laughs> academic stuff did it did it feel any different like the, the the process of doing it because you were doing it now kind of with kind of selling it in mind i guess do you think it shifted how you approached it yeah and not not really in a good way for a while because i was like i got very obsessed with that project and I was working much too hard like really long hours because I was like I have to get this finished because it's like my big project that'll have to sell all the I have to sell this many copies to make a living and what was the what was the project vertex dispenser okay uh, which you probably never heard of <laughs> Uh, I guess if you look through my website, you saw it on the list somewhere. But yeah, uh, I I didn't approach working on it in a very healthy way. And and did that change? Yeah, after after I released that, I was very depressed for a while and not getting much done and then I was like no I'll make small games and that's more fun because then I actually see the results straight away and who cares about selling them so I made Compendium yeah um, which is like a, a collection of eight or nine little multiplayer games yeah, yeah. and a bunch of other little jam games around then I was like yeah jams this is this is good well, we're going to come back to that uh, shortly, I think. But um, I always like to try and ask everybody um, uh, a few kind of relatively uh, quick-fire questions. So, um, if you're down for that, I'm going to I'm going to start. So, uh, Michael, uh, if you had to play a game with the devil for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Ah, uh, game I'm best at. <sighs> I mean, probably one of my own, because <laughs> I, I 
find them a lot. That is totally understandable, but I think in this case, completely inadmissible. Shit answer. Um, Possibly still Race for the Galaxy, um, which is a a card game. Okay. Uh, I played it a lot. I don't play it so much now, but I was I was very good at it. Are you are you a competitive gamer? Do you get competitive with games? I I get competitive, but I'm not always competitive. I, I guess my my approach to competition is that it's for a lot of games it's the driving factor that makes the game work. Yeah. So when you're playing the game, you have to like seriously try to win the game. And if people are just like going, oh, let's play it for fun, the game doesn't really work the same. No, it's the worst. Because, yeah. And so I, I, I go into the mindset appropriate to the game, and I'm like, seriously trying to win it. But, but you're not staying up all night trying to beat a high score on something or beat someone's lap time or something. Yeah. Yeah, I usually... You know, I, I, don't, I don't mind losing that much. And I... I when I was playing it, I was totally focused on winning, but then I was like, oh, cool, well done. Yeah, it's I, just I the game. Well, I, I feel like I already know the answer to this next question already, but if you are prone to such things, um, can you think of your worst rage quit? Worst rage quit? Um, well, I'll tell you about the, the most I raged at losing a game. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't a multiplayer game. It was the original Rogue. I've I, I played it a lot. I'd never beaten it. Okay. Uh, it's quite hard to beat, but one 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 day I was playing it and I had so the, the game has a hunger clock that forces you to keep advancing to find more food. Mm-hmm. But there's an item called the Ring of Slow Digestion, which takes away half half the pressure on the clock. Yeah. And one game I found two of these rings. So that pressure is completely removed. So you can stay on the same level as long as you want. So and you were set for, for beating the game then. You've, you've got all yeah. the tools. And there's another item, the Scroll of Scare Monster, which when you're standing on it, monsters can't attack you. Yeah. So I was like, completely set. I'll, I'll stand on the scroll, hold down, wait, spawn a bunch of enemies, and then just churn through them all to level up, and then I can definitely beat the game. So I, I did this for a while, completely no risk leveling up, and I was like, cool, the the rate of leveling up goes down, like, you know, the, the, the marginal value of each yeah, enemy yeah. is less. So then I was like, okay, I'll go down a few levels and grind it some more, so I'll definitely be strong enough. So I went downstairs a few times, did it, it again just stuck something on the weight key went to get a drink came back and on the screen is like the dragon hits the dragon hits the dragon hits <laughs> you have died I'm like, what? <laughs> it turns out that the game isn't so easily broken there's one enemy that that has a range attack and so it can attack you when you're standing on the scroll <laughs> I, I was i was furious i, I thought i won the game and i was just like overconfidently yeah you got cocky you went yeah. to get a drink yeah <laughs> if, if i just like stayed there and been like paying attention and like 
pressing the wait key one step at a time and checking everything's <laughs> fine. I could have dealt with anything. I had inventory full of items. Uh, yeah. I'd be chasing that perfect run forever. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, I was furious with the game for having this thing that I hadn't known about because I'd never gotten that deep, and, but more furious with myself for like, just blindly assuming that I could... <laughs> That's amazing. Um, does your does your wife play games? Does, do you play together? Has she got any interest in them? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we when we were playing Race for the Galaxy, we played together a lot, and other board games. We haven't been playing board games so much recently because we got into dancing. Oh, amazing! What sort of dancing? Um, mostly blues. Partner dancing, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how, how much of a digression that is for the show. It depends on your, what is the definition of game? Well, exactly. That, that, this actually, uh, oddly, this has come up before um, with uh, Kirsty Rigdon, who, uh, she's one of the designers who made Velocity and Velocity 2X. I don't know if you've played either of those. Um, no. But she, she she talked about kind of how, like she she was a dancer and how that kind of, helps her kind of I, I don't know like because the velocity games are very kind of uh movement and, and time based like there's lots of like jumping between platforms is like a, a the character does like a phase shift between walls and stuff and like getting the timing of that down she felt that she had uh, i don't know a better like physical understanding of how you process movement i suppose yeah i, I haven't made an action game since i since I've been doing much dancing, so I'm kind of interested to tackle that again. Like Helix was the last action game I really made, and that I spent a lot of time on the movement feeling, and I was really happy with it. But yeah, I've got. What do you think? Um, what do you think that kind of feedback loop is like? Like, do you notice that in in the games that you do that you have like? I mean you have such a sort of high level of maths that that inevitably has to kind of feed back into the types of, of games that you make. Um, but do you feel like it goes the other way as well, that you, you can take stuff from games and kind of apply to the, the real world? I like to think you can. It's hard to, to concoct specific examples. But I think just that the mental attitudes of playing games can be applicable to real world. Yeah. Like you, you get used to failure, used to trying trying a task again and again, used to expecting there to be some underlying logic to yeah. things, which isn't always the case in the world, but no. <laughs> often, often it is a, a good assumption to be starting with. I, I, I think, like, I, I do... Uh, it's an interesting one that because I think all of those things are true and I think you can take so much from games but the the issue I suppose if it even is an issue is that I think all games generally kind of offer those same things if you know what I mean so regardless yeah. of how they're what type of game it is it's all essentially like problem solving and like figuring out how to restart and you know not be sort of killed by losses just you know okay try again try again or you get all those kind of same feedback loops but 
specific games obviously will have more specific focus but it's, i think it's a broadly here's what you can get from games uh, we, we, i guess it might just be a uh a, a, cutback might come from just put, putting it in those general terms makes it sound like it's the same thing okay okay i don't know thoughts you're having when you're playing different games are often different types of things no, I guess, yeah, it's hard to pin down like a specific application, but it feels like different games are different to play, so they should have different applications. Yeah, they should. Otherwise, they'd just be the one monolith kind of game that everybody plays. Um, so, like, during this process of like you know making lots of games and kind of traveling about the place, did you, um, like, at what point did you kind of think, oh, okay, I'm I make games now, like I've made it essentially. Not made it, but you know what I mean, like justifiably so. I've done it. Don't know if I thought that. Like, I still, I still feel uncertain whether, whether I'll be able to keep doing it. I, as, I, Tara's job situation has always been. Like short-term postdocs, yeah. Um, like that, when when she has a job, that's like enough for us to both live on. We live cheaply enough, and then I, I've made enough from games to to save up to have a buffer to keep going for a while when she doesn't have a job. But yeah, yeah if we more people need know, to play your games, Michael, they're, they're wonderful. <laughs> Nice. Has it always been? I suppose, like up and even up until now, like have you always been more interested in the making of games, or do you still play quite a lot? Like, is there anything that kind of sticks out that kind of changed your understanding of games in some fashion or broadened them? Yeah, I don't. I don't play games as much now, partly because I I, I spend too much time sitting at the computer, and I've become aware of that not being great for my body so i try to move around more yeah um but i still play dota a lot and that that takes time do you enjoy it obviously like yeah yeah i guess my my approach has always been to like play a few games a lot rather than to play everything that comes out and that that maybe comes from the the childhood thing of well i've only got a few games so i'll exploring them as far as i can has there ever been a game that you've kind of had to to walk away from because it kind of consumed too much of your life i i i never got into world of warcraft in the first place because i guess i was worried that it might yeah but looking back i don't think it actually would have that's not really my how i play things like i play one game a lot but not not to the exclusion of life <laughs> it's, it's good that you went straight for world of warcraft though because that is the the most common sort of answer to that um do you yeah, I, I saw i saw other people getting stuck on it and i was like whoa i don't want that but yeah yeah i don't know if it would have affected me like that i don't know no it was exactly the same i i, I steered well clear because i knew it probably would pull me in um but are you still like excited about games now like do you still look around and be like oh man games are amazing this is an exciting place to to be and work 
Um, what about stuff like uh, VR and things? Have you tried any of those? Yeah, I I got to play Deep a year or two back, and that was cool. And I played Terry Terry Cavanaugh. I was visiting him. He had the the room set up. I can't remember what the console was called, but we went played through all the different demos that he had, and it was. It's the Vive, isn't it? It's the one where you have the, like, the yeah, free rain, rain around the room and stuff. And yeah, I, I was quite. There was one where it's like set in a fantasy world. You're at the top of a tower, and there's like looking around. There's a giant creature stomping towards the tower, and it's like starts smashing the tower and stuff. And it felt really cool to be able to move around in that space and like position my body yeah. in the space. And like, I felt like I could hide from the monster by ducking below the walls and then peek up. And it just didn't actually seem to have any effect on the game that I was doing this, but it felt like there was a potential there for, for ducking and that kind of stuff to, to be cool. Oh no, it's super exciting, super exciting. Yeah. Um, so what, like, what are you currently up to? Like, are you working on new stuff right now, or are you just taking a, a break? Or I'm still working on Imbroglio stuff. Um, I'm slowly grinding through the, the PC port of it, which is just really bad, because I hard-coded all the UI for a portrait. Yeah. And it's uh, just a total mess to unravel that. Just put uh, big borders either side; it'd be fine. Like there's a sort of stigma associated with being a mobile port on yeah. PC. And I want to, like, I won't be able to avoid all of that because there's a four by four dungeon crawl. People will be like, oh, "It could be a mobile game. It is a mobile game." But I want to at least avoid some of it by not having it be obviously just the. <laughs> mobile screen well this is potentially an interesting question like the speaking of the the grids like is that because that's kind of pivotal to to the game and how the game works is that simply like a virtue and and it is kind of a virtue of the screen as well like it fits and it works like if, if 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 you're approaching it from that point of view where you're developing for mobile does the the size of the grids kind of dictate the type of game that you make like do you think if you developed it for pc first it would be different no it was was definitely designed first um because i was was making these games for pc uh zaga is a nine by nine grid and then hack i was like well i'm fitting more onto each tile each tile has more information so there need to be less tiles to not have too much information on screen so i went down to six by six and then after that, I was just kind of excited about, like, as I go smaller, the games get denser, and that's actually great for the how they play. Yeah. So if I go even smaller, what's going to happen? Yeah, I think we've covered all sorts of good stuff there, Michael. Is there anything that kind of hasn't come up, anything you wanted to mention, or if you just want to, like, tell people where they can find your stuff online, then, then please do. Yeah, like, it would be nice if more people bought my games. <laughs> That's it, really? 
<laughs> but where can they where can they do such things? Like I'll put links, but we may as well say. Yeah, like a bunch of them are on iOS. A six eight hack is on Steam and there's a bunch of free games on my website, messtop.com as well. Yeah. Cool. Um well I I think that's covered. Was that okay for you, Michael? Yeah.